Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to me to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. <clears throat> Welcome to church this morning. So we are in the midst of our series called Reliving the Glory Days. And it's a series that's taking us through Ezra and Nehemiah. So did anybody notice anything about the text we read today? It's in Esther, right. That's not in Ezra or Nehemiah. The book of Esther is, in fact, a totally different book from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, I'm in seminary. So when we're looking through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we're looking at a story that takes place in three parts. We're looking at the Jewish people who had been exiled to Babylon and their return to Jerusalem, their promised return to Jerusalem to rebuild three things. These are the three parts. To rebuild their temple, which we already saw happen when King Cyrus sent uh, people back and funded them to rebuild the temple under their leader Zerubbabel. And then secondly, we followed the rebuilding of their community, which we just finished which is when King Artaxerxes sends Ezra with a wave of exiles who return to Jerusalem to repopulate and reestablish their community in Jerusalem. We saw that Ezra had committed himself to knowing, doing, and teaching the law of God. Those are, those are great. If you're looking for like New Year's resolutions in July, then those would be good ones. Knowing, doing, and teaching the law of God. And as he was doing that, reestablishing this people that are returning to Jerusalem, uh, what happens is they, the returned exiles fall into disobedience again. They end up disobeying the law of God. They end up marrying the people who had repopulated Jerusalem while they were gone and worshiping their gods and following into their cultural practices, disidentifying themselves with their God. And that disobedience breaks Ezra's heart as he's looking to reestablish this community and reestablish their true identity. And so Ezra's heartbreak has this contagious effect amongst the community, and they're drawn towards this mass repentance. And that mass repentance is what we looked at last week, how literally under a storm that God is bringing, an actual storm with like rain and it's cold, they're repenting before the Lord for disregarding him as God was being so faithful in bringing them back. So that's reestablishing the temple and reestablishing the community. The next thing that we'll be moving into is rebuilding the city. 
And that takes place throughout the whole book of Nehemiah. So we'll be leaving the book of of Ezra, which we've covered, and moving into the book of Nehemiah to trace Nehemiah's journey of going back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the city by uh, rebuilding the walls of the city in particular. But before we do that, uh, we're going to do what we're doing today. So while we were laying out this series, uh, Russ sent me an email, and he was like, hey, here's something that's interesting. You should look into this. And as we were laying out sort of the format of what Ezra and Nehemiah will cover, and it was some articles describing uh, the overlapping time of Ezra, Nehemiah, and the book of Esther. Both uh, Ezra, the end of Ezra, the last three chapters, and the entire book of Nehemiah take place under this particular king named Artaxerxes. Now, Artaxerxes, that means son of Xerxes. So stay with me now. This is, we're going to have to focus big time. Artaxerxes is the son of Xerxes. So Xerxes, who's the father of Artaxerxes, everybody seems like we're there. Xerxes is, uh, that's the king who marries Esther. That's the Persian king who marries Esther. So we started to look in and see all of these connections between uh, Esther, the story that's happening in the book of Esther, and then how things finally unfold, especially with Nehemiah. There's probably some influence that you could draw in terms of Artaxerxes' influence with Ezra, but particularly in the book of Nehemiah, there is some real interesting connections that we can draw out by taking one day to have a clear look into the book of Esther. So that's what we're doing today. It was a connection that I became sort of obsessed with. It was like, uh, I don't know, an obsessed person. It was like Jake Gyllenhaal and Zodiac. Um, I became obsessed with it. And the connections are sort of amazing. I kept having, over and over again, as I was looking into these different connections and the different archaeological evidences and things of that nature, um, I had this experience that I, was, I shared a bit with Zach, uh, which is sort of a strange thing as like a, a pastor is reading through and seeing these amazing connections, and it would just sort of sink in of, this really happened. There's this incredible evidence for these things, and this actually happened. And like, I know that I'm like supposed to just think that, uh, but it was really amazing, especially seeing these connections. So Esther, we're going to spend our entire morning this morning covering the whole book of Esther. And the good news is, it's a great story, and it's a comedy, so we'll leave in a good mood, because uh, it has a happy ending. But uh, we're going to spend the whole morning covering the book of Esther, and Esther is a very strange book. It's one of the most interesting books in the Old Testament. Uh, for two reasons in particular, it never mentions God, and no one ever prays. So no one prays, and there's no mention of God. So if I'm like the editor of the biblical canon, and like I'm taking like scripture submissions, and someone's like, hey, I just finished this one, it's called Esther, check it out. I'd be like, well, it's good, but there's a couple of major oversights with what we're trying to do with this book. Um, 
but it's done with a real intentionality. There are, there are several opportunities in the book where it would be clear for him to just, for the author to just mention God, or it would be clear for the author to have the characters pray or demonstrate a point where this was, this must have been a sort of prayer that was happening, and the author sort of intentionally dodges those moments. And they're doing that on purpose. It's to point out that even amidst God's apparent silence, and even in the midst of his apparent absence, God is completely in control, and God is working. So that God isn't only the ultimate uh, ends that the story is moving towards, but God is the author of the story as it's happening. That's what the book of Esther really exposes, God's control even amidst his silence. In that case, Esther is a very contemporary book, It's a very modern book in that sense because it's so accessible. We're able to understand the way that the characters in Esther are feeling, what their motivations are, and their culture even has a lot of similarities to ours that the book is taking place in. And so in that sense, it's an excellent book to understand how is God working in our lives now? How can I understand God's presence and his control over the particular instances in my life now? If you can get the book of Esther and you can see in your life how God is working in the same way that he works throughout this book, then I think you can live with a type of courage that uh, is incredibly rare, a type of courage that perhaps you've never known if you can understand what happens in this book. So, I was thinking through what is the best way to do this, <laughs> because this is a whole book. It's 10 chapters. Uh, so I decided I'm just going to go like a couple hours long today. Um, not really. We're just, we're, the, the only way to do it, I think, is I'm just going to tell the story. Tell the story of Esther, and then we're going to look at the connections to Nehemiah, And then we're going to look at the connections to us. So it'll be three chunks this morning. We're going to tell the story of Esther and just sort of immerse ourselves in this story. This is going to be like This American Life segment or something, This Persian Life. (laughs) And um, then we're going to move into how it connects to Nehemiah and then how it connects to us. So the story of Esther Settle in, gather around the campfire. (laughs) Esther begins with a feast. So it says, Esther 1.1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, He gave a feast for all his officials and servants. So, Esther begins with a feast. As I said, it's a comedy, which means that it's a narrative with a U-shaped structure. So it starts with a feast, which is like a happy thing, and then we'll dive down into this terrible, dangerous moment, and then we'll rise out into uh, the happy ending. So it is a true comedy. And it begins with this king named Ahasuerus. Uh, 
So Ahasuerus is the Greek version of the name Xerxes. Do you remember Xerxes that we talked about in the beginning? Xerxes is the father of... Awesome. You guys are doing great. Xerxes is the father of Artaxerxes. So we're dealing with Ahasuerus for the sake of our understanding and linking it to Nehemiah. I'm just going to refer to him as Xerxes, although the text refers to him as Ahasuerus. It's the same person. Also, this Xerxes, it's worth noting if, if this is sort of in your mind. Remember the movie 300? Yeah, yeah, like some people are like really into that. <laughs> um, uh, that's, it's that Xerxes, <laughs> the one who, is, who pridefully goes against the Greeks and is destroyed, and it's very embarrassing. That's this king, and his character is pretty much like that throughout the story. So Xerxes, it's his third year. He hasn't really accomplished anything, and he throws himself a feast that lasts 180 days for all his officials. So they're gathered, they're feasting for like six months, and nothing finishes off a six-month-long feast like another week-long feast. So he throws himself another feast that lasts for seven days. And at the same time, his queen, his wife and queen, Queen Vashti, is throwing a feast as well for all of the women in uh, his palace, which is called the Citadel of Susa. And so at the end of King Xerxes' feast, he decides, you know, I'm going to parade my queen in front of all these men. And they're very drunk. One of the only rule for the feast was there are no constraints. So it's like Outback Steakhouse. There's no rules. <laughs> and they, uh, uh, so he decides, it, it, it's all of these drunk men, and he decides, I'm going to get my queen, and I'm going to parade her in front of all of, uh, all of my officials. And what happens, and this is what sets the whole story in motion, Queen Vashti refuses. Queen Vashti says no. For some reason, we don't know in particular, we don't know much about her character, but she was about to be paraded in front of these men, perhaps dangerously, in probably a promiscuous way uh, that was forced upon her, and Queen Vashti says no. She doesn't go. So Xerxes is incredibly embarrassed, and he calls all of his, not all of, but he calls a lot of his counselors around him, and he's like, so what do we do now? Which sort of demonstrates Xerxes can't make a decision. And they really freak out that Vashti isn't obeying her king. And they say, you know, this isn't just a problem for you, Xerxes. This is a problem for every man in Persia, because Vashti, uh, it, all of the women are going to think, oh, well, we don't have to listen to our husbands anymore. And they will uh, start, you know, overthrowing their households. So a bunch of drunk men are afraid to go home to their wives because they think they might start thinking for themselves. And so they, uh, they have an edict that goes throughout the whole province and it says, Queen Vashti can never appear before Xerxes again. And this is to demonstrate that all the men of Persia have the right over their household. So they probably felt very good about themselves. Um, uh, yeah, they probably felt pretty good. So that sets the story in motion. All of a sudden we have a king who has no queen. So what to do? 
Xerxes' counselors have an excellent idea of let's have a beauty pageant throughout all of Persia. And this was rare for Persian kings, as they typically married from about four or five families that they networked with. But instead, that rule book is sort of being thrown out the window, and they're saying, let's go find just the most beautiful woman in all of Persia, and we'll have a beauty pageant in order to find her. So at this same time, there is a, a man who lives in Susa whose name is Mordecai. And Mordecai is a Jewish man who had been exiled. He's from the lineage, actually, of King Saul, sort of a distant uh, relative in that lineage. And he has a young cousin uh, who's uh, considerably younger than him, and her name is Esther. Esther's parents had passed away at some point, and so Mordecai took it upon himself to raise Esther as his own. And so Esther is incredibly beautiful, and that means that she gets selected to be in this beauty pageant, and that's probably saying it nicely. She, she's getting, in a sense, kidnapped, and she's being held in custody where she can't leave for a year where she go, undergoes six months of a particular beauty treatment with like spices and then another six months of beauty treatment and then she's presented to the king. And when she's presented to the king, uh, he, she makes it into this other round of selection and then in that other round of selection you go and you have a night with the king. And in that night with the king, she impresses him. You can probably read between the lines on what's happening. Uh, yeah, think Bachelor in Paradise scandal. <laughs> Something more like that. And there's, uh, uh, so she impresses the king. And ultimately, she impresses him more than all of the other women. And she becomes the queen. Xerxes chooses her to be the queen. So Esther is now made the queen. Throughout this whole time, Mordecai is checking in on her. He's keeping tabs on her. And he gives her this piece of advice, which is don't reveal your Jewish heritage. Mordecai was a very shrewd individual. And I mean that in a good way. He had a sort of his finger on the pulse of the anti-Semitism of the culture that they were living in. And so he advises Esther don't reveal your heritage throughout this process. And the text doesn't uh, make a particular judgment on that then, although Mordecai doesn't obey his own advice. So next up, we have this brief incident where Mordecai, who works at the king's gate, is, he overhears a plot by a couple of eunuchs to kill Xerxes. So they're looking to kill the king. Mordecai connected to Esther. Mordecai notifies Esther. Esther notifies the king. They investigate the plot to kill Xerxes. They find the two uh, eunuchs that were looking to kill them, whose names were Big Than and Teresh, and they uh, have them hung on the gallows because uh, it turns out that they were, in fact, intending to kill the king. And all of this is recorded in the king's chronicles. So tuck that away for later. We have a story in the King's Chronicles of Mordecai saving the king. So things are going pretty good so far. We have 
a new queen who's our main character, and we have Mordecai who does this great deed to save the king. Now it's time for our you to dive a little deeper and introduce our villain. So Xerxes uh, raises to second in command in the kingdom a man named Haman. Now Haman is an Agagite. That means he is a descendant from this individual named King Agag, who was an enemy of the Jews that King Saul was told to kill but didn't. And one of his descendants lives on in this man named Haman. So Haman has this heritage of hating the Jewish people. And uh, this is something that Mordecai knew or would have known, that Haman was an Agagite. And so one of the laws regarding Haman's new position in the kingdom was that everyone was required to bow to Haman. So everyone was required when Haman comes by to bow. I don't know if that's how they bow. And they, uh, Mordecai refuses to bow. So Haman's walking by. Mordecai refuses to bow. Haman is incredibly angry at Mordecai's refusal to bow. Here is this Jewish man who I hate anyway because of his heritage, and now he's refusing to bow to me, the most powerful man in the kingdom, save the king. So Haman develops this plot. He, it was above Haman to go and kill Mordecai himself, but he develops this plot to eliminate all of the Jews. And so he goes to King Xerxes and he says, I will deposit 10,000 talents of silver, which is a lot of silver, into your treasury uh, if you allow this edict, which will allow for the killing, the annihilation of all the Jewish men, women, and children in the Persian Empire, and for us to plunder their goods. So the the Jewish people who are described as worshiping gods in different ways than we do and living according to these values that aren't in accord with the Persian Empire's values. Uh, the idea seems pretty good to Xerxes, and so they initiate the edict. It is to be, now let me check my dates, it is to be on the uh, 13th day of the 12th month. But something takes place amidst this decision-making process. When Haman first commits himself, to destroy all of the Jews. He thinks, I need to consult something in order to make this decision, that I'm doing it at the appropriate time. And so the way that he did that is he would roll dice or cast lots. They were called purr. That was the name for the rolling of the dice and the casting of the lots to make the decision of when to kill the Jews. So for five years, Haman is rolling dice, waiting for it to turn up to describe now is the time that you initiate your plan to kill the Jews. So for five years, he's rolling dice until one day it comes up and the date is set, the uh, 13th day of the 12th month. Now the clock is ticking. An edict goes out and Mordecai reads it and is distraught. All of my people are now the planned. There is now a planned annihilation of all of my people. And so, Mordecai, in his distraughtness, his brokenheartedness, he's sitting in sackcloth and ashes before the king's gate, not crossing the threshold of the gate, but just outside of it, because he's in such mourning. 
And some of Esther's servants discover Mordecai and the way that he's sitting, and they relay that information to Esther. So Esther is sort of guarded from all of this, and she sends Mordecai some clothes and is like, just put some clothes on and relax. You know, I don't know what you're doing, but it's time to get dressed, Mordecai. And Mordecai, talking through uh, some trusted uh, eunuchs uh, who act as their messengers, Mordecai responds to Esther and provides her with the edict that describes the annihilation of all the Jews that's impending now. And so he begs Esther through these messengers, please go before the king and plead on behalf of your people that he might spare us. You are the only one with this sort of connection to the powers, the levers of control in our society that could possibly spare us now. And if you don't, the wheels are in motion and we will certainly be eliminated. So Esther's initial response is, listen, you don't just go before the king. Do you remember what happened to the queen before me? She doesn't say this, but I'm saying this. Do you remember what happened to the queen before me? When she disobeyed the king in any way, when she lived as her own person in any way, she was ousted. And so Esther has this moment where she's like, no, it it will be certain death if I go before the king to make a request like this. And by the way, the king hasn't called me into his chambers in 30 days, and he hasn't been sleeping alone. So there's this tension sort of interpersonally in the relationship as well as politically for Esther. She has a decision to make. And now I want to turn to the text for this plan to help because uh, this is probably the central passage of the book of Esther when Esther finally changes her mind. It says in Esther 4, 13 to 16, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Don't think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You see, Mordecai describes the situation that they are in with such clarity and such precision that it actually will change Esther's mind. Because what Mordecai is saying is that he has such a certainty that the Jews will be delivered. Why would he have that certainty? The only reason is because of God's promises to the Jewish people. The text could have so easily said that and skirts it for a reason, because it's making us draw this conclusion on our own. But Mordecai has such a certainty that God will bring deliverance for the Jewish people. The only question for Esther is, are you going to be a part of it or not? Deliverance is coming. God will work his salvation for his people. God will be faithful to his promises. Are you going to be a part of that story, or are you just going to remain in your own story? That's the decision that Esther has to make. And then he posits it with this, who knows, The Bible has several statements like this that are amazing. This, who knows, perhaps the reason that you were made queen 
is for such a time as this. Perhaps this is exactly the reason that you're here. He might as well say, you didn't make yourself the most beautiful woman in the empire. You can't claim credit for this position that you have. This sort of just happened to you. For the whole first part of the book, Ezra doesn't speak. She doesn't do anything noble or valiant. She just goes along with the cultural norms that she's in. And now she's given this choice, this opportunity. Are you going to be a part of the story of God's salvation that he's working? Are you going to look at the circumstances that your life has put you in now? And are you going to say, God has put me here to glorify him and to be used for his purposes? Or are you going to say that this is just your story and God has no claim over it? So, Esther responds, and her mind is changed. And she says, Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I, my young women, will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Incredible heroism on behalf of Esther. She had this choice between her identity as God's chosen person, as a Jewish person, and her identity as the queen of the most powerful empire in the world at that time. And she decided that her identity as part of God's chosen people was more important than her identity as the queen. And so she lays that down to go and approach the king. So, back to the feasting. Esther approaches the king, and by taking her life into her own hands, if the king doesn't lay out his scepter uh, and you approach him without being called, then you will be killed. She approaches, and thankfully, the king lays out his scepter. She is spared. And she requests that the king attend a feast. So she hosts a feast for the king, and she also invites our villain, Haman. So they have this initial feast, and Esther tactfully doesn't bring up the issue with the Jews. She doesn't bring up the impending destruction. She just sort of butters up the, uh, the king and creates this sort of sense of normalcy about them. And so they're leaving the feast after nothing, after nothing really happens, but they just enjoy a feast together. And Haman is leaving, and Haman is over the moon about being a part of a feast with the king and the queen. Who else gets to feast with the king and the queen? Haman is thinking as he leaves. And as he's leaving, he walks past the king's gate, and he sees Mordecai, and Mordecai once again refuses to bow to Haman. So Haman, at this moment of incredible pride, all of a sudden sees this man who views him as just a man and refuses to bow to him, and Haman is full of anger. All of a sudden, all of the good things that had happened to him previously, previously that day of going to dinner with the king and the queen, they don't matter at all compared to this Jew that won't bow to me. And so he goes back to his uh, friends, basically, and uh, says, what am I going to do about this Mordecai? They recommend build a gallows 50 feet tall and hang him from it. Then you will be able to go to the next feast 
with the king and queen joyfully without this Mordecai on your mind. So Haman has the gallows built. That night, the king, for some reason, can't sleep. He's kept up by something. So Xerxes is lying in bed, he can't sleep, and he requests that the chronicles come and be read for him. Uh, Chronicles can help put you to sleep. (laughs) Uh, Even though, yeah, but don't read email before bed. And the king comes, uh, so the king is having the chronicles read for him, and what is read but the story of Mordecai saving Xerxes. So Mordecai, he remembers the story of Mordecai saving Xerxes. And then uh, Xerxes is thinking to himself out loud, who, what have we done to honor Mordecai for saving my life? And he realized they've never done anything to honor Mordecai. And so at this moment, incredibly, Haman walks in to discuss killing Mordecai, and the king, in the midst of this brainstorm, says, Haman, what should we do for the man that the king delights to honor? And Haman, thinking that the king is talking about Haman, says, here's, I was hoping you would ask, (laughs) why don't we get a horse, and you can put that man on it, and you can put royal robes on him, and you can put a ring on his finger, and you can put a crown on his head, and you can have him led through the town in a parade with one of your most noble servants before him uh, proclaiming, behold, this is what the king does to the man whom he delights to honor. And Xerxes says, great idea. Haman, would you do that for Mordecai? And so he does. And so Haman has this moment where he has his enemy, Mordecai, on a horse, walking him through the streets, proclaiming before him, behold, the man whom the king delights to honor. So after that parade, which Mordecai, I can't even imagine the look on his face. (laughs) After that parade, uh, Haman and Mordecai, they go their separate ways. And... uh, the eunuchs come and they, gra- they, they get Haman and they're like, listen, you have the second feast with the king and queen tonight. And Haman is full of anger and he goes to this second feast with the king and queen and the king finally asks Esther, so what, what is it that you would like? I'll give you anything, up to half my kingdom, uh, which is an expression that kings seem to use a lot. I'll give you anything, up to half my kingdom. And uh, uh, I don't know if I can make that joke. I was going to say it kind of, it sounds more like a prenup. And they were, uh, so he says, I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom. And uh, Esther says, I, I wouldn't have even brought this up if it weren't so drastic, if it weren't so dire. But my people myself and my people, have been sold to be destroyed. And I wouldn't have even brought this up if we were just being sold into slavery, because to bring it up would cost the king too much. But I'm bringing this up because we aren't being sold into slavery, we're being sold to be destroyed. And Xerxes is filled with this rage. Who 
who has sold my queen and all of her people to be destroyed? And Esther incredible, has this incredible moment. That man, Haman, right there is the one who did it. So Xerxes, Haman is obviously his stomach drops, and Xerxes is so angry and drunk that he stands up and leaves the room. He's just like, I just gotta, I don't know what he's like. He's like, I just gotta leave the room. And <laughs> uh, at, meanwhile, Esther and Haman are left back. Esther's sitting on a couch, and Haman is before her sort of violently uh, arguing against Esther. And when Xerxes walks back in the room, Haman falls on the couch that Esther is sitting on. And so it looks to Xerxes as though Haman is physically attacking Esther. And so he says, would they even attack my queen? And the servants of Xerxes are sitting there and they're like, well, that means we should kill this man. So they move in to uh, take Haman and one of them suggests perhaps we should hang Haman on the gallows that he had constructed for Mordecai. And they do. And so Haman, in 48 hours, had led Mordecai in a parade of honor that he had uh, created for himself and then had been hung on a gallows that he had built for Mordecai. It is an incredible reversal. Meanwhile, the uh, uh, Esther and Mordecai go to King Xerxes and they say, we need to write an edict that cancels out this other one. Um, and so the king basically gives them a blank check. He gives them their, his signet, signet ring, uh, which allows them to write any edict that they would like in the king's name. So they write an edict that allows for the Jews, it gives the Jewish people permission to uh, fight and annihilate anyone who tries to kill them on that day, the 13th day of the 12th month. And so that day arrives, and because Esther and Mordecai, especially Mordecai actually, had risen to such a place of power in the kingdom, People were so frightened by the Jewish people that the, the Jewish people just annihilate all of their enemies. And they end up actually getting their plunder and goods as well. And so this plan to eliminate the Jewish people is actually the means that God uses to bring peace to their experience in the Persian Empire and to build up their wealth amidst their time in the Persian Empire. It is an incredible, incredible reversal and an amazing act of God's providence. So Esther and Mordecai save the Jews, and they have a celebration on the 14th and the 15th of the 12th month. And they name that celebration the Festival of, I don't really know how to say this, Purim. And do you remember the term pur, P-U-R? That's the name of the dice that Haman rolled for five years to determine the exact day that he was going to set in motion his plan to annihilate the Jews. And so when the Jewish people have their festival to celebrate their victory, they name it the Festival of Purim to remember the dice. Because if it hadn't have been that exact moment, perhaps things would have gone differently. So 
the book ends with a description of Mordecai's new position in the kingdom. Mordecai is actually given the position of Haman. So he is now second in command in the Persian Empire. He is now one of the, most, one of the top two most powerful people in the world. And oftentimes we overlook Mordecai. For some reason he is lost to our uh, contemporary imaginations, especially when we're thinking about uh, powerful people in the Bible. Because Mordecai is raised to this level of second in the, in the kingdom, the same that we saw for Daniel, and the same that we saw for Joseph. He's the same type of figure in Scripture. So part of the reason that we wanted to cover this is because he's someone we ought to remember, someone who navigated so well this complicated, often very gray, secular environment that he was in, along with Esther, who does the same thing navigating this very complicated, very gray, secular environment in order to bring about incredible uh, salvation for his people and glory to God. So, uh, yeah, the description of Mordecai's rank is in Esther 10, chapter 3. It says, For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. He was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. He sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. That is the story of Esther. So, next, our connections to Nehemiah. These go much more quickly. So, Nehemiah begins, says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. See, Nehemiah is in the same location, this same palace, that these feasts were thrown in, that Xerxes had lived in, that Queen Esther had lived in, that Mordecai had served outside of. And this is the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, who was the son of Xerxes. So the 20th year of that reign, and that puts it at about 40 years after the incident with Esther began. It's actually about 40 years after the feast that Queen Vashti didn't show up to took place. And at this time, Nehemiah receives word that, they, that the walls of Jerusalem are crumbling and his heart is broken because he knows that his people are called to rebuild Jerusalem and a city without walls is, is useless and, and helpless. And so he approaches King Artaxerxes taking his life into his own hands because you don't just approach the king and make a request. And the text does something so interesting in this moment. See, Nehemiah prays before going to the king and he works in the palace, so he's the cupbearer to the king. And he approaches King Artaxerxes. In the text, when he approaches him, it says, and the king, once the king finally responds, to Nehemiah's request. In Nehemiah 2.6, it says, And the king said to me, and then parenthetically, our Bible translates it, although there weren't parentheses, but it's spoken in that way. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him. Now, Jonathan Edwards had this Bible 
that was interleaved. So there was a blank page between each page of scripture that he would use to make notes on. And it's called the Blank Bible. It's pretty famous. And so Jonathan Edwards, writing in this, in his commentary on that he just wrote for his personal notes, he pulls out this section and he says, notice the queen sitting beside him. And he thinks perhaps this is a connection, referencing the great favor that this queen's, that this queen, who is the successor to Esther, perhaps she's sharing in Esther's favor. This trail that Esther had blazed in order to gain a, a voice, a queen who had a voice with her king. Perhaps that the queen sitting beside him is noted so clearly in the book of Nehemiah to draw our minds back to the previous queen of Esther and the great favor that she had won. And perhaps Nehemiah being granted all of the funds that he is granted by Artaxerxes to go back and rebuild the walls, perhaps he is sharing in this favor that Esther had won in that kingdom. And so it's an amazing idea and one that I was so nervous about, and then Jonathan Edwards said it, and I was like, okay, I can say it. <laughs> because it's such an incredible connection that pushes us into what do our prayers mean? What, what did it mean when Nehemiah was so nervously going before the king and he was praying, and he didn't know that his prayer that he was praying then had begun being answered 40 years earlier? when a queen refused to go to a feast and a beauty pageant was held and the most beautiful woman happened to be this Jewish woman named Esther who, who, whose parents died and so she happened to be raised by this really wise man and who, who gained her power because a man rolled dice and the dice happened to fall on a perfect day that would allow a sleepless king to reverse the fate of the Jewish people. How could Nehemiah have possibly known when he was praying that, when he was praying for favor from this king, that that favor had begun being worked at least 40 years earlier? What type of a world are we in? What does God's silence really mean? Are there really that thin of margins or are the margins a total illusion? Are we really completely in his plan? And if so, if his plan is that intricate, if the margins are that thin, then our question isn't, is his story going to be successful? The question is, are we going to share in the joy of that story or not? That's the question the same question that Esther had to face. Because when we understand that God is working so intricately in the world, managing all of the details so completely, then that can give us such an incredible courage, such an incredible fortitude to be moving forward, to be going and, and laying ourselves down before such complete and unimaginable authorities that can kill us and destroy us, knowing that even though we can't see the intricacies of his plan, they're there, and he's working them out. 
understanding that God is working in our world in those ways, in those incredible details, provides us with such an immeasurable, an amazing amount of courage. So let's go to the connections to us, which I got sort of riled up and moved into a bit right there. But the connections of us, the verse that I wanted to pull out is this Proverbs 16.33. It says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So our question is, is that actually true? The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Is that really true? Are we actually going to live that way? Because that changes several things. That means we can't ask, what if anymore? What if I had done this differently? What if I had gotten that job instead of that one? Remember the movie Sliding Doors? I'm not going to use that example then. And there's, there's uh, it, what if something had just gone a little bit differently and then my whole life would be different? We have no space for that anymore because God is guiding everything down to things that we, we have decided are representatives of chance, which are rolling dice. This is saying there is no chance. There is no what if. God is the author of this story completely. In philosophy classes, we would talk about this as God's omnipotence and omniscience, and we would always approach it as a problem for our freedom. And so we would have arguments and debates and look throughout time of how different people have gotten around this problem of God's omnipotence and his omniscience, and how ultimately that must be a violation of human freedom and human free will. But consider, if the story did come down to these millions of contingencies, like the ones that we see in Esther, of how many rolls of the dice, and it was just how they happened to fall, or of what the king ate that night that happened to cause him to not be able to sleep instead of passing out, if the factors in our life come down to these little decisions, these little things that we had viewed previously as just insignificant, then we wouldn't be more free because of a lack of God's power. But we ought to feel completely paralyzed, unable to decide what shoe to tie first in the morning because we don't know what implications that will have for our life down the road unable to decide who to call first out of the phone calls that I have to make today, unable to decide which side of the bed to get out of this morning because this could, this could mean an incredibly great thing or an incredibly terrible thing. See, the lack of God's guiding providence, the lack of his complete control over even a die being tossed means not a freedom for us, but a paralysis and our understanding that God is completely in control, even of the intricacies, the intricate little details of our lives, and understanding that he is working things together for his glory, such that the world isn't getting worse, but it's getting better, because it's arcing towards him and the culmination of his kingdom. That means that we can live with an incredible courage and a true freedom, a freedom to make decisions that feel even risky, a freedom to make risks 
because we know that ultimately this story is completely his. Ultimately, it belongs to him. Understanding the book of Esther allows you to properly interpret your life and properly interpret the circumstances that you are in. It's incredibly helpful that we have that book because I've never heard God speak to me. I've never heard an audible, go this way, don't go that way. But I've seen his providence. So this calls us to trust in that. We live in a place and a time that's a lot like Esther's. It's a predominantly secular society, and we live and move in mostly gray areas, working with people that have values that are very different from uh, what ours would be as Christians, and we're working with them. And Esther shows that even in the midst of these gray areas, God is at work. God is faithful in the midst of these things. So if you're waiting, if your life is on pause because you don't know what God's purpose is for you yet, or because you... Uh, because the decisions that you're faced with making, there isn't a black or white answer in it, and therefore you don't feel like God can be a part of it, then if you understand the book of Esther properly, then it's time to unpause and move forward. Make the decision. Make the decision because you're free to know that it's ultimately God's doing, that the story ultimately belongs to him. So our so church, <laughs> unpause, move forward courageously. We can because we know what's true because of Esther. Esther offers us this incredible picture of courage. A queen who identifies with her people and because of that sets them free. We have an incredible picture as well of a king in Jesus who identified with us not just that he might perish, but he actually did perish. And we know through his resurrection that he is in complete control of the story, and he is working it out to his ends. The question is, are you going to be in that story? Are you going to share in the joy of the ends he's working it towards, or just perish along the way? So let's take some questions. Could you offer any clarification on the idea that my life matters, but it doesn't affect the will plan of God? However, I've still got to account for my actions, so God obviously cares about them. Any advice about the wisdom to deal with the tension between the two? Yeah, yes. Um, uh, a lot of people think they're comfortable with this tension. But the reality is, We've just, we've just spent a lot of time with it. And we've forgotten how this tension can feel when you first discover it. And it can feel uh, really nerve-wracking. Incorporating into your life and into your worldview this idea that God is actually in control of everything that forces you into questions that you would previously be able to avoid. You would be able, you used to be able to credit God with the good things that happened with your life and not hold God accountable for the bad things that happened in your life. 
but understanding God working in every area of your life, that God uh, even working amidst your broken and often terrible and selfish will forces you into questions of what is God really? What does his control mean really? What does it mean for all the suffering that I see in the world? What does it mean for all the horrible decisions that I've made in my life? What does it mean for those things? And all of a sudden, you have to wrestle with the idea that perhaps you hadn't been thinking of God as God. And perhaps you've been thinking him as just a very powerful, moral person. But you haven't given him the seat of God who is able to claim all as his. The only thing that works as, and it's not even as a remedy, but it's as a necessary ingredient for this view, for our ability to think in this way, is the gospel. Because in the gospel, we see God working through the horrible, evil intentions of humanity to uh, perform the most evil act in all of human history, which is the crucifixion of Jesus. And through that, heinousness brings about the redemption of all of creation. Our only hope is that even God working in those things can bring about, is bringing about something beautiful. So without the gospel, this, is, this should just cause you to despair and should probably cause you to just feel a, a distance from God. But with the gospel, you see there's this ingredient that makes sense of his faithfulness, even amidst our sinfulness in the world. Uh, so, yeah, next question. This story seems focused on circumstance. Where do we derive God from these experiences? Is their, cele- is their celebration not a worship of happenstance? That's, that's, exactly, that's exactly it, right? That's the, the decision that the book pushes you into. You have to decide. Here are all these variables and all these things that are seemingly coincidence, and now you get to decide. Is that just happenstance, or is God actually guiding things in this world? Is that just time plus chance plus matter, or is God actually guiding the course of world events? My, one of my favorite secular arguments for the existence of God is called the fine-tuning argument. And the fine-tuning argument says that there are several uh, non-dimensional cosmological constants. I don't know what that means. <laughs> but there are several aspects of the physical universe that need to be so finely tuned in order for life as we know it to take place. And it's so unlikely that they would find themselves in the dimensions that they are. And if they weren't in those dimensions, then there would be no life uh, or no existence in general. And so you're forced into this decision of, is that just happenstance or is something guiding it? And the arguments against it from the secular world become incredibly religious in nature when they start to put forward these arguments. The best one is uh, the multiverse, 
the idea that there are millions and millions of infinite universes, and therefore we just happen to be in one, and therefore the odds of one of the exist of of a universe like ours existing when there's infinity universes, it's actually inevitable. But you see, that's not a scientific argument. That's a religious claim <laughs> that we're supposed to have this faith in this magnificent power of millions of universes. Now they're just creating another type of deity to worship to explain something like our own existence that otherwise is just totally inexplicable. So for your very existence, you're forced into this decision. Is this just happenstance? Or does something here actually matter? Next question. That's good. <laughs> this is a comedy. <laughs> In the course of human history, it is as well. Because things started really good in the garden, and then they got really bad. And we're in the midst, and we see a lot of really bad around us. But we know in Jesus that things are arcing towards his new heavens and his new earth, a new creation that's redeemed, where our lives are meaningful and purposeful and loving and joyful, and where we are actually engaged with God not just in the background, but personally. That gives us an amazing hope. We're about to take communion, and in our communion we'll remember how God is bringing about the redemption that he is, the story that God is writing, the redemption that he accomplished in Jesus. By taking a horrible payment, a punishment for the evil that we face, by going before the king and bearing the wrath, not just risking it like Esther did, but actually bearing it, that we might get to experience the end of our stories as a comedy instead of as a tragedy. If you're not a Christian, then that means, well, you don't believe what we've discussed today. And this is a declaration that you do. So we'd ask that you don't partake. But if maybe you think you are now, then please do. It's an open table. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would fill us with that type of courage and bring our hearts into line with the reality that you're working in the world which is you are in control of all of the details of our life. And that, that wouldn't make us feel like our freedom has been taken from us, but that it would make us feel like our freedom has been given to us because we trust that you are good. And we can see that so clearly. And that you've already done the hardest thing. You've already given your son for us. Father, I pray that you would lay have us lay down our pride that wants ourselves to be in control and wants the credit to ultimately be ours. And Father, that we would humbly approach you, a king who could easily turn us away, but didn't. And trust you for the redemption that you are bringing about in the world. Father, give us a courage that comes from a trust in you. Lift that up in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening. Thank you.